Today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show is brought to you by Diabolic DVD. For almost 20 years, Diabolic DVD has been the source for horror, cult, and weird cinema to customers around the world. Diabolic offers a one-stop shopping experience for all of your favorite labels, including Arrow, Synapse, Vinegar Syndrome, Severin, Mondo Macabro, Blue Underground, 88, and many more from all corners of the globe. So whether you're looking for the definitive version of Suspiria or trying to upgrade your crusty old DVD of Cannibal Holocaust, Diabolic is the owner-operated small business choice you've been craving. Shop online at DiabolicDVD.com. That's D-I-A-B-O-L-I-K-DVD.com. We're also brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. It's the number one choice of horror fans worldwide. Nothing starts your day or night better than a delicious cup of Deadly Grounds. Whether you're hunting ghosts or fighting the next zombie apocalypse, any one of Deadly's 30-plus roasts will bring you to caffeine nirvana with the richest flavor you've ever had. Whether you're craving their Hellhound Roast, Witch's Brew, Devil's Night Roast, or Sinful Delight, Order online at getdeadly.com for easy and safe shipping right to your door. We know that once you go deadly, you won't go back. Join the deadly revolution today. Be bold, be different, be deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. Get some at getdeadly.com. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Keith Thomas is an American writer and director who made his featured directorial debut with The Vigil from IFC Midnight. The Vigil tells the story of a young man in emotional recovery after fleeing from his Hasidic community, who is then called upon to perform an all-night vigil over the body of a recently deceased man in his widow's apartment. Everything is going fine until the young man realizes that the house is the host of a malevolent spirit. The Vigil was a great film. I personally love supernatural horror, but it's rare to see ghost movies that build upon Judaic mythology, which is what really allowed The Vigil to stand out as a very unique entry into supernatural horror. That plus its very poignant human drama made this a really exciting and just fresh film. In addition to The Vigil, Keith is also directing the remake of the Stephen King classic Firestarter under Blumhouse, which is really, really awesome. I talked to Keith all about the making of The Vigil, lessons learned from his directorial debut, Firestarter, as well as Judaic demonology. All this and so much more on today's episode of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Now strap in and enjoy this conversation with Keith Thomas. Keith, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks. Doing really good. So really, really enjoyed the vigil a lot. And I feel like there's this whole new, I was reading one of the other interviews that you did and somebody mentioned that there's this whole other kind of conjuring universe potential with Jewish (laughs) mythology and Jewish demonology. And I was, uh, my dad's, my dad was Jewish. So I had, uh, I definitely, it was part of the, part of the upbringing, but there are elements in, in Jude, Judaic mythology that I was not aware of. And it sounds like <laughs> with this movie, you're just scratching the surface. Yeah, no, no, it's great to be here. And for sure, there's a deep, rich kind of super ancient sort of side to Judaism that 
most uh you know most of the population who are kind of more i would not necessarily secular but kind of more involved in the secular world Mm -hmm. don't know about or don't see and kind of in the more insular hasidic community or the ultra orthodox religious community right there's a ton of stuff that's kind of that's there that that very that hasn't really been translated in english or that people just aren't that aware of wow so how did you get aware of uh of these elements of judaism so you know a couple ways one i've just you know as a horror fan i'm always looking for monsters (laughs) kind of (laughs) you know and so when it came time to write this script i was like i'm gonna try to make my first movie i know it's gonna be horror yeah what angle what it's you know it's kind of a mercenary thought but it was like what angle can i take that's gonna feel original that i can kind of call my own and so it was like you know, this idea of Jewish horror. I'd seen Dybbuk movies mm-hmm. where non-Jews find a Dybbuk box and, oh no, they've unleashed the, the evil spirit uh, on Gollum movies. Right. But I hadn't seen anything that really was set within a Jewish world or kind of had that lens. Um, and so once I had that idea, it was kind of like, right, just digging in. And I, I do have a background, you know, done a lot of different things in my life and this kind of filmmaker thing is the the most recent but before this i was in healthcare and did clinical research and before that i was actually in a rabbinical school oh wow. i'm not a rabbi but i studied theology mm-hmm. um and i in my master's thesis was on monsters in the torah oh that's the, cool so so right this so this stuff was always kind of there and so you know when the vigil kind of emerged in my mind it was like okay this is the opportunity to dig into stuff that people really don't know anything about that's super cool yeah i mean like i mentioned my dad was jewish and uh was not he was i mean i hate when people say spiritual but not (laughs) religious but he totally he actually wasn't even that spiritual he was more into the i just the tradition of of judaism Mm -hmm. and i'm not going to break into tradition from uh filler on the roof but (laughs) but he was just strong traditions where you know right it's the whole a lot of people who are not religious, they still have like a Passover Seder. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's a great, great meal. You're going to have matzo ball soup and stuff. I mean, that's why Yeah, not? exactly. Um, and so, yeah, you know, there's a lot of that culturally kind of Jewish stuff that, that a lot of us grow up with and knowing I, I didn't kind of grow up very, re- you know, in a very observant yeah. sort of, you know, household. But once I started digging into it and kind of uh, spending more time in kind of the more religious communities and aspect and kind of, both exploring it on my own, but also just, yeah, picking up these bits and pieces and kind of studying the text. And, you know, Judaism is not a super, a very superstitious religion. Mm -hmm. You know, we, there isn't a hell and a devil as in Christianity. Right. That's, you know, sends out all these demons. And I love that stuff. I I love reading these books of demons where you, you get the ninth prince of hell who does this. He looks like an ox with a crocodile head. Like (laughs) that stuff's amazing. (laughs) But we don't have it. So we got Dybbuk, we got Golems, and I was like, well, what else? We got to have something else. There's got to be other stuff right. that we can use. So that's how I kind of came across the demon that is in the vigil. So was that demon based on one that you had read, just like yeah, literally? Or okay. Yeah, it literally is. So, you know, in, in Judaism, and again, we're talking thousands of years ago, yeah. kind of where this emerged, but they're called Shadim, which means demons. Um, and some of those demons are Liliths because mm-hmm. Lilith is actually p- plural. There's many of them. Um, and then there's another called the Mazik and the Mazik is what we have in this movie. And, you know, 
so mazik in hebrew means destroyer and that mm-hmm. sounded really really cool You're like wow that thing's called a destroyer that's awesome yeah um but the rabbinic literature again much of it not translated into english it has no description of it it just says don't go into that house there could be a mazik in there mm. so for the film i kind of had to invent the look of this thing um, and for me, that meant tying it directly into the themes of the movie and kind of the psychology of the main character. Yeah, and that's uh, that was part of my next question is in terms of the or the origin of the idea. Clearly, you wanted to do some sort of Judaic demon like story, but how did the other the main story of Jakob come about? Because I mean, I had seen movies about people recovering from their experiences in certain communities, and that seemed obviously is a huge theme in this movie, but how did that part come about and come together? And what were some of the other bigger themes you were exploring? Yeah. So once I had this sort of idea of uh, a showmare, someone who watches a body and I thought, wow, that's crazy that no one's made a movie. Uh, that is the setting. Once I kind of had that set up, it was like, well, who's watching the body? What's the most interesting thing. And for me, a character in crisis is the mm-hmm. most interesting character. I love coming into a character's life when they're like at their lowest. Yeah. When, you know, they're kind of struggling the most. And so the, you know, the showmare, this, this job in terms of a paid showmare, it only exists in this Hasidic community. So I knew I was going to be, it was going to be set there when we you know, really got into, you know, uh, working with my producers on it. Um, and for me, it was more interesting to have someone who left the community right. and was struggling in the outside world, struggling to make it in the secular world, and then having to be called back. Like, what does that do psychologically to somebody who's kind of has their you know own background, reasons for leaving, mm-hmm. who have to go back? And then part of those reasons for leaving were stuff I just wanted to explore just in general in terms of, you know, if you've ever been around death, um, it brings up, of course, uh, ideas of our existence and our right. mortality. And you, it's hard not to start thinking about well, what happens when I die and these questions. And that led me to kind of wanting to explore trauma yep. and pain and how those things in particular, it was really about how one instance, like one, one thing that is super dramatic and terrible and tragic, but only lasts like 20 seconds, mm-hmm. how something like that can have ripples that can not only ruin one life, but then, multiple lives yeah. and stretch out through a family and a neighborhood and a community. Yeah. Generational trauma felt like it was a big theme in this movie. And I've, I've seen that in recent movies, the relic from Natalie, Erica James sure. is about, you know, trauma as generational trauma, hereditary, hereditary in a huge way <laughs> is. Uh, but this one in a very different way, it feels, uh, it, it feels like it's about that generational trauma. And, you know, obviously the Holocaust is a huge part of that. Was the, did these things, were these conscious themes you were trying to explore at the time when you were writing it? Yes, to a certain extent they were. It was, uh, the 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 themes of kind of right the generational trauma and the sort of kind of how a community is affected and in mm-hmm. particular like things going way back you know my own family was affected by the holocaust as well as pogroms that yeah. happened before the holocaust so we have that that's in the movie as well but so i'd grown up with that and kind of knew that um when we changed the setting of the film originally it wasn't set in new york and because it was a, a even lower budget kind of movie that i was just gonna try to nickel and dime pull it all together scrape it together myself to make but once i teamed up with my producers we moved it to new york and that community the their sort of lifestyle a lot of their lifestyle a lot of kind of how insular they are is a direct response to the holocaust so that became a 
important sort of touchstone for it. Um, and also the source of, you know, the most kind of anxiety for me in terms of the filmmaking, you know, once we decided like, we're going to show flashbacks that are taking place in the Holocaust. I was like, Oh man, this is going to be tough. This is, how do I do this? Yeah. You know, on this budget, um, in a way that's going to be meaningful. That's a huge emotional responsibility. Yeah, it really is. And it's, it's very hard. So for me, it was kind of like, okay, if I'm going to do this and again, it's not much of the movie, but it's some impactful moments. It was, how do I do it in a way that feels different and new in some ways, but that also is identifiable. So there's a movie called son of Saul, which is a very powerful uh, Holocaust film where the camera is essentially on the shoulder of one, one guy. Mm -hmm. And it's really from his perspective uh, in a death camp. And so I kind of turned to that and I was like, that that's interesting. Like, let's make it really, really narrow the scope. I can't show like a camp. I can't show the, the massive horror. I can do it audio sonically. I can Mm -hmm. kind of show it. But then when it came time to actually represent this, you know, we're shooting it at that point, it was Queens, you know, it's like, how do you, (laughs) I'm going to do a Holocaust movie in Queens. You know, it's, (laughs) It was tough. Yeah. Well, it turned out, it turned out great. It was a very intimate, but because it was so intimate, very, uh, very effective scene for sure. Mm, Thanks. So how did the, in terms of production, how did you get the movie off the ground? This was your feature debut, right? It was. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, I had a, I had made a short film in 2017. um, That was kind of my boot camp because I didn't go to film school or anything. And it was kind of, I'd been screenwriting for a while mm-hmm. um, and kind of it took me a while to find my voice in terms of what I wanted to make. And I realized having worked on a number of films that uh, as a writer, for me to get kind of capture that true vision of what I wanted, I'm going to have to make it myself. Yeah. So I made the short film as a sort of proof of concept, like a calling card to say, you know, this is, this is who I am. And this is what my, my vision is for filmmaking. And I was lucky enough that that it worked in the sense that I was able to make pe- meet people um, and make headway on, you know, bringing a feature film to life, which became the vigil. Um, I wrote the vigil in 2018 and originally kind of my manager had sent it around and there was some interest in it. Uh, but no one would let me direct. It was kind mm. of one of those things of, we'll buy this, and but you're not the director. And I, you know, it was a tough decision too, because you're like, yeah. hey, I could sell this, <laughs> but, and, and, you know, be a part of it. But at the same time, I was like, no, nah, this has got to be my stab. So my manager sent it to the producers, these guys at Boulder Light, um, mm-hmm. who, Rafi and JD, both really young guys. And he said, you're going to like these guys. These guys love the script and they get it. So, I went to their office and I walk in and it's, they make only horror films for the most part and, you know, contracted and, you know, they made a bunch of these horror films. So I walk in and the the walls are just filled with posters for horror films, like Freddy Krueger standing over there. And yet both these guys are Orthodox Jews with yarmulkes on. And I was like, wow, if anyone's going to make this, (laughs) if anyone's (laughs) making it, it's these guys. And so incredibly, you know, by the, from the time that we, that I met them until we were on set was only nine months, which is pretty Whoa. incredible. So these yeah. guys are the real deal and they like to act fast. Yeah. Yeah. And they pulled it together quickly and yeah, it came together really nicely. 
That's pretty amazing. So the the response has been pretty good as well, right? Yeah, it has. It has. And you know, it's funny when we when I obviously when I wrote the film and then when we were making the film, I had no idea what was I was just trying to make the best movie I could right. that was as true to the vision that it seemed as though people were buying in, right? So mm-hmm. we were getting great cast and great crew um because people were believing in this thing and i was just like look i just need to execute it right if i can execute this then then that's great i kind of got that's that's all i could hope for yeah and then you know to have it premiere at toronto was just massive we never expected that and then right then getting distribution and the response has been it's been incredible and i you know uh, I guess it's just it's kind of at the right time when people right. are interested in this sort of stuff and looking for horror films like this um, and then also a testament to my you know the team in terms of like giving it their all and really uh, making something that I felt was true to what I wanted mm-hmm. that's amazing and congratulations on that and yeah thanks it's probably a good a time as any to talk about how this led to Firestarter how did that come about so they (laughs) the right people saw the vigil Mm -hmm. on the festival circuit and here we are i'm sure i'm oversimplifying it but how did the opportunity to direct firestarter come about yeah it's a it's a fun story in that uh, right so the vigil premiered in toronto in Mm -hmm. september um i travel i go to fantastic fest every year as i did until the pandemic but right uh, you know and love fantastic fest in, in, uh, in Austin. And, uh, I was there mm, and just checking out films, just hanging low. Uh, and, uh, I got a call from my manager that Blumhouse wanted to meet that they'd seen the vigil and they wanted to meet. So I said, okay, sweet. So I went out to LA and, uh, you know, I kind of went into that meeting thinking, a, what am I going to pitch? You know, you gotta go in, you gotta have something to pitch. So I had my ideas and then, also thinking, well, what else did they have? Like, what could they have that they might be interested in me for? Yep. Firestarter was definitely not one of the things that I had thought of. Um, but then when Jason said, hey, Keith, I got an idea. How about I want you to do Firestarter? It was, you know, it was huge, right? It's one of those huge moments where not only was it a book that I loved mm-hmm. and one of the first King novels that I read, um, but it was something that I really was passionate about just in general, just as a story it's kind of one of King's, uh, you know, it has this sort of psychic power. It's like Carrie in the sense that it has these psychic powers. Mm-hmm. It's about, you know, involves drug studies, which is what I did for a job. Right. Um, so there are a lot of interesting parallels. And I, I felt like we could make a new adaptation that was going to be, you know, both deliver on what the book promised and maybe the original film didn't. Um, but at the same time, take it in a fresh new direction. And then when I read the script by Scott Teams, uh, who wrote the upcoming Halloween Kills, and mm-hmm. uh, you know he, he's he's done a bunch of stuff and he's amazing. The script just blew me away, and it was pretty much at that moment I was like, "Yeah, I got to do this." So, you know, it was great that Stephen King watched the Vigil, and uh, whoa, you know, and you know, yeah, it was huge. It was one of those moments of it's a good feeling. A year after we made the film, yeah, to kind of have that sort of response. Uh, it was huge. That's so cool. Well, I'm sure a lot of details are under wraps, but what can you tell us about Firestarter so far? Yeah, I mean, we've got a great cast. Uh, you know, Zach Efron's, you know, officially been announced as yep. Andy McGee. Um, and we've got Michael Gray Eyes, who will be playing Rainbird, um, which is, you know, he's an incredible actor as well. So I'm really, really psyched about the cast. Um, I can say that, you know, the 
the fire starter that I wanted to make and the fire starter that both Blumhouse and Universal want to make um, is very intense. It's very visceral. It's very emotional. Um, if you, you know, just want to see a movie about a little girl who, you know, melts people from the inside of their head out uh, or, you know, burns through, <laughs> you know, walls of people, you're going to see that. Uh, if, however, you also want to see a film about, you know, this really intense uh, very emotional sort of family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to get that too. It's really rich in terms of uh, exploring. I, I, I think in a lot of ways we're taking more time to explore what maybe the original film didn't mm-hmm. in terms of how do you parent a child who can do this? You know, how do you, I think all of us uh, as a parent myself, you struggle with uh, both, you know, parenting a child but also letting them become the person they're going to be right. You know, on their own and finding their own way. What if their own way means becoming a monster? How do you deal with that? What do you do with that? And, you know, and you take that sort of pressure cooker situation and then you have people after them and you have this whole scenario of, you know, essentially everyone wanting to capture this little girl who's a, to them, a weapon, Mm -hmm. you know, comes really intense. And, uh, we're really diving into that, that That, aspect of it. That's super cool. Yeah. I feel like some of the most compelling horror comes up with real ethical equations as well as gets into real personal drama. And I feel like the intertwining of the two delivering good scares while also creating a compelling emotional drama is it can be a really difficult dance. And I, I I thought you did it beautifully in the vigil to go back to the vigil. What was the approach for that in terms of writing? I mean, it was very emotionally poignant, but it was also very scary. And I always am thinking, I mean, the scares were legitimate and they were not jump scares, <laughs> which I was, you know, jump scares are just becoming taboo these days. But, you know, it was uh, yeah. legitimately frightening, but also very heartfelt. And it hit a lot of emotional chords and was deeply resonant from the, for me, from the perspective of, you know, trauma, generational trauma, things like that. So, I mean, how do you intertwine all of that on a narrative that works and doesn't feel overburdened with, you know, a, a story agenda, if that makes sense? No. Yeah, it does. And it was, it was tricky. It's kind of a hard needle to thread in that, right. You kind of want to have the best of both worlds. So, and it was something we had a lot of discussions about me and my producers in terms of like, they're like, Keith, how do you see this success? Is it an emotional movie? Mm-hmm. And that's the success. Or is it a scary movie? And that's where the success is. And of course, I was like, I want to try to do both. I want to try to hit both. Um, But they are, right? They're different kind of sides of things. Um, Scares in terms of like manufacturing them and kind of how you develop them and build them within the production and then post-production. They're they're their own thing. They're very Mm -hmm. technical. And then the emotional stuff, of course, is coming from the actors and it's coming from, you know, the script and kind of... So for me trying to get both of those was kind of merging them together so that for me, the best scares are ones that are directly tied to the emotional state of the character because we're in their head. Mm-hmm. And so the scares have to be reflective of kind of what they're experiencing. Um, at the same time, I tried to cover as many bases on scares as I could because scares are subjective, right? right. You know, it's just like comedy. Some people love slapstick. Other people love dry British humor. And not, you know, not the other. So some people, if something comes out of the dark at you, like, that's it. That's like a great scare. Other people, it's much more psychological. It's Mm -hmm. like, 
who am I actually talking to on this telephone? And that's, that's the deeper scare. Um, so I tried to work as much of that in as I could. Yeah. And then it just came time to, you know, I think pretty early on, I decided that once he gets in that house till pretty much the end, it's like no holds barred. It's all scares, right? It's just, I'm just going to, the overriding theme is dread in here and I'm going to maximize it as much as I can while at the same time digging into the character stuff. And it, once we were really, once I'd kind of, once we got into pre-production, I was really kind of seeing it come together. That's when I was seeing that uh, I was having the effect I wanted in terms of uh, getting the scares to resonate beyond just these moments. Just yeah. like, you know, a lot of times scares are just every five minutes you need a scare. It's right. Like, boom, you hit it. Boom, you hit. And whatever. It's just this little roller coaster moment. But I wanted them to linger. I wanted them to have resonance kind of with what our main character is experiencing. So they're building mm. on each other in a certain extent, um, which, you know, which was tricky. Yeah. Uh, and it just, it just took a lot of work in the script stage, honestly. Yeah. To, to get that. Well, the real fear for, I mean, in, in empathizing with the characters, he's wondering, am I mentally ill? Am I actually, am, <laughs> am I imagining these things? Is it the medicine talking? Is it like that was, I thought that alone was, was pretty frightening. There's also a moment I want to touch on. I hope this is not a spoiler, yeah, sure. but there's a <laughs> moment. I love that there was a big theme of, he kind of had to not necessarily renounce his faith, but renounce his community. And then he had to rediscover his faith. And there's a moment when he mm. does, and he puts his yarmulke back on and he puts the thing around <laughs> his arm. Right, right, <laughs> that right. felt so evil dead to me. <laughs> I was like so look, Ash putting yeah, the <laughs> chainsaw on his arm. I was like, "Yes, he's getting ready to kick some ass now." Look, so yeah, it's funny you're the first to mention it. Um, but anyone ever time anytime anyone talks about the scene, that's exactly the reference I bring up. So originally, when I kind of envisioned this moment, it was straight up like Evil Dead. I was like, "Let's go do some dolly shots with like a Dutch angle and like go full." Sam Raimi on it. Yeah. Like, let's just boom, boom, boom. Um, I eventually kind of stepped back a little bit from it in terms of like, well, let's make it a more poignant sort of moment as well. But a hundred percent, it's like putting on spiritual armor. It's that right. moment. That's always at like the beginning of the third act where the hero has to gear up. It's the gear up and get yep. ready to go into the darkness. And so the thing he's doing is to fill in, um, you know, which is these leather straps that, you know, the little box that's kind of on his forehead has a prayer inside of it, a scroll mm-hmm. with a prayer. That's essentially the the kind of watchword of the faith. You know, there is only one God, uh, the kind of monotheistic thing that Judaism, you know, is central to Judaism. So there, there, there's a, the, you know, the, the kind of, you're supposed to bind it yep. uh, as a sign upon your hand and before your eyes. And so this is a literal representation of that. It's something that is very common putting on to fill in, but not something you see in film much. So, I thought, hey, A, it's a way of him strengthening himself for this encounter he's about mm-hmm. to have. And B, it looks kind of badass if you're wrapping leather around. It's almost like you know, going into the ring if you're wrapping leather right. around, you know, around your arm and your fist. Um, so yeah, I'm glad you got the kind of you know, that 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 evil dead moment, the the ash with the chainsaw thing was like such a it just was always there. It was yeah. just always there in the background of that, that scene. I'm sure it can't be helped after a while. <laughs> no, that's right. cool. Has there been any response from any religious communities on the movie? I mean, I could see it either being really, really appreciated or not because, you know, religion tends to be that polarizing, but has there been any sort of a religious response? 
So we've gotten, we've had it. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, you know, the kind of larger Jewish community, it's mm-hmm. been a pretty good response in terms of it's played a lot of Jewish film festivals. Yeah. And, you know, even at Toronto, we had kind of, we had a rabbi from an Orthodox community there come and see oh, the wow. film in the theater. And, uh, and uh, he, he, he was, he, he, he was very excited about it and kind of, it felt very good about it That's good. in terms of the community itself where we filmed. I don't think they'll ever see it. I mean, it's possible. I've talked to people who kind of were, you know, know the community a little better than I do. And, you know, there's a suggestion that, yeah, maybe some of them would see it like secretly they'd watch it on their phones, like right. no one's looking and <laughs> whatever, but there wasn't as much interest from them. They, they were more interested in why the hell we were in the community filming. Like, mm-hmm. why are we there? What are we doing? Then the movie we we're actually making, but you know, from religious folks, the response has been good. They felt like, you know, it's a tightrope in the film in terms of does he abandon his faith right? or does he go back into it? And I kind of wanted to walk the middle road of, no, he doesn't do either. He's right. kind of got a foot in both. And uh, that's how we end it with the sort of, you know, we don't know what happens yeah. next sort of thing. It felt like a very balanced way to do that because he, uh, he was in over his head so far on one end of the spectrum and then he was – in recovery and probably trying to renounce his previous history Mm -hmm. to me, that night that he spent doing the vigil was his way to kind of find a (laughs) middle ground. It felt like a very even keeled way to restore or refine your faith. Anyway, that's a lot of, yeah, a lot of room for interpretation. Oh, cool. (laughs) Yeah. That was a hundred percent what I was going for in terms of, I didn't want to be preachy. I didn't, I wanted to position this as it's a horror film and I want to just, you know, have people experience this thing and not necessarily come down on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. Like, Oh, if you're facing these evils of the world, you need to go back to your faith and that's where you're going to find solutions. That's Mm -hmm. not the answer. No, it's also not that you need to strip everything away and go completely the opposite direction. Um, It's, it's finding what gets you through. Right. Sometimes that is the thing you abandoned. Sometimes it's not. And so it was right. Like trying to navigate that middle ground, which you know, it was tricky. It was tricky in terms of like, yeah, do are we going to offend people? Maybe some, but I think we'd offend more if we kind of came down on one side or the other. Yeah. And I mean, there's, there's so much to project your own interpretation in this movie. I mean, I saw just a lot of it and I'm sure on, on your end, that's intentional to a certain degree, but I'm sure there's also a sense of creating a story, call it the collective unconscious or whatever, in a way where people just can, there's this mysterious element where you can just project your own interpretations into it um like for instance that demon that looks behind i to me that meant stop looking in the past so much it's all about moving <laughs> right. forward <laughs> right no 100 percent. right that the, the demon ended up becoming the embodiment to kind of of our protagonist's central dilemma which also was the dilemma of the community and also mm-hmm. kind of people as a whole um i you know and there were a lot of times certainly in scripting when there you, you get that little nagging thing maybe it's a note that you get or it's something just in the back of your head where it's like add more exposition hmm. make make this clearer and i really fought against all that because at the end of the day i thought it's going to resonate even though people don't necessarily get it and yeah. or know the details of what's happening um and you know so for me it was very much you know i, I kept thinking back to alien hmm. in the sense that uh you know it, you don't what we don't see or we're only getting glimpses of is so much more powerful than the final reveal. 
yeah. of, of this thing. And, and the same goes for the themes and the same goes for the kind of character notes. Yeah. So what was the writing or what is your writing process? Like, I know you've, you've been a writer for quite some time. Do you try to abide by a daily Stephen King thousand word, 2000 word minimum <laughs> or what is your, what does your process look like? Yeah. So in terms of writing, um, you know, I kind of, I write every day. I'm mm-hmm. definitely kind of one of those. I never take a break kind of guys, even when I'm on vacation, I'm like at it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's both good and bad in that uh, it's kind of become, it's obsessive in the sense that I just have to always be pushing forward on things. So some days are very productive and I'm getting a lot done. Other days are not, but um, you know, I, I'm the type that, uh, I like to just kind of get everything out on the page, like just get it out and then go back and work through it and kind of, you know, see what's working, see what is. And I tend to write much more than I ever need. Mm. Uh, and then some of those things I cannibalize for something else later, but um, it's all about, yeah. Once I have the concept, it's kind of like fleshing it out, like spilling it out on the page first and then kind of going back for it and refining it however long it takes. Yeah. And do you outline? I do. Yeah. 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 And I didn't, I fought it for a really long, for a very, you know, very long time. Certainly when I first started screenwriting, I was like, fuck it. I don't, I don't need to, I don't need to outline. I know this story. I got it in my head. Right. But screenwriting structure is, 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 it can be very complicated. And if you try to just stream a conscious it Mm. and you're just like, I'll get to the end, I'll figure it out. It's never going to work. So I I learned, even though it's painful, and I think a lot of people that kind of have this idea, I know, I know my movie, I want to write this movie, and they just start going for it. You can actually make a lot of mistakes in kind of just diving into it right away. And mm-hmm. you can find yourself in a place where you're not willing to kill your darlings, where you're keeping scenes that you do not need. Yeah. Because structurally, you've fucked it up already, and you're not going to be able to get what you what you want out of it. So it took me a while to get to outlining, but now I love outlining. I, yeah. I do you know, very short outlines, uh, just a little treatment and then a full outline. And then I'll, I'll even do like scriptments where I'm bringing dialogue into the outline. And before I go to the, by the time I get to the actual script, I know exactly kind of where I'm going. And you're probably dying to just start writing at that point. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Cause you can spend months and months and months on those outlines. Were there um, any resources that were helpful for you in terms of story structure or learning story structure that you turn to a classic one for people is save the cat, but also Joseph mm-hmm. Campbell and things like that. Mm-hmm. But where did you learn yeah. story structure and do you return to anything to make sure it abides by any sort of specific structure? You know, so I think when I, so I had read, you know, a lot of the books story and save the cat and these sorts of things. And I uh, tried to internalize as much of that sort of structure as I could. But then of course, being, you know, being uh, rebellious, I was like, I don't need structure. I, I don't need that structure. Right. That's, those are commercial Hollywood movies. I don't want to write those. I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and of course I failed miserably trying <laughs> not to do the structure. So then what I did is, I just read every single script I could find just reading them, reading mm-hmm. them and reading them and, and, and looking just on the page. Okay. This is where this is happening. This is where this is happening. And it got to the point where I kind of internalized that where I'd go to movies with us. I guess it was pretty obnoxious to me, but I'd have my phone out and I'd have a uh, stopwatch on my phone and I'd look for a minute 11, what's happening in the movie. 
minute 15, what's happening in the movie, <laughs> minute 25. And I'd see it. You know, you'd see the structure right away. Right. Oh, there's a crossing of the threshold. There's the, the, the all these things. So once I kind of internalized that, then then yeah, then I then I started really kind of finding liberation in the structure mm-hmm. and then not fighting against it so much. In terms of kind of like what I what I turn to when I think about it, I guess Campbell to a certain extent. We're living in a great time in terms of like what's available on YouTube. There's, oh, yeah. a, there's a lot of amazing sort of introductory kind of screenwriting or film kind of production I class stuff that's on youtube there's a lot of great kind of in insightful folks there that can really that i that i found helpful myself mm-hmm. okay cool so one thing we didn't get so much into is the actual physical filmmaking and element of uh, of making the visual it sounds like you're a pretty hands-on director were you how involved were you with actual selection of camera lenses and all of that how involved were you with the physical aspect of of making this movie i tried to be as involved as i possibly could kind of on every angle not a control freak um but just i I had the vision in my head of what i needed it to look like Mm -hmm. and so it was much more kind of collaborative uh, on as many levels as i could be in terms of Right, selecting the lenses and you just and, and having a crew that was very open and, and very collaborative as well. So Zach Cooperstein, the DP, uh, and I, you know, spent a lot of time in pre-production. A shot listing, like incredibly detailed shot listing. We knew what lenses we wanted very early on, and I mm-hmm. and we knew exactly, you know, if we're on the forty or the fifty millimeter, where where we were with certain scenes. Um, we photo boarded the movie, which was something I had never done before. Photo boarding, essentially. Yeah, it was basically using the lenses that we we're going to shoot with and then uh, putting them on, uh, you know, using them through an app on the uh, on the cell phone. And then oh. I would stand in for each character and we basically frame each shot. Oh, wow. Um, and by the end, we had basically a flip book where you could see the whole film if you flip through it. Oh, that's cool. So that was great for my producers. And just to show anybody, it's like, yeah, this is what the movie looks like. Here it is. Right. Um, so, yeah, then it was once we had figured all that stuff, then it was, you know, as hands-on as I could be in terms of, you know, the lighting and the atmosphere and kind of what we're doing here, but then also in the production design in terms of a, the authenticity of this place. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, for me, it was important to know kind of every little thing we're doing, like where everything is. So, you know, if we open a drawer in the kitchen, what, what's in that drawer, I didn't Mm -hmm. want it to be that that drawer is empty. We never mm. open the drawer in the kitchen. No one, no one ever looks in there. But I needed something to be there. Yeah, and I had to know what that was. Is it this spatula or that one? And it was kind of the vision was like, yeah, it's that spatula. This is that house. So it was, you know, being as minute in the detail as possible without being obnoxious. Yeah, in terms of like, you know, it's a palpable difference. I think you can feel when a director is that detail oriented, like Matt Weiner, for instance, who was behind Mad Men. He filled all the desks with the exact pencils that they would have had that year in 1960, <laughs> whatever, and even matchboxes from that time period. And again, you never saw any of the stuff, but he filled the drawers mm-hmm. with them and the, the, the cast knew they were there and the audience subconsciously sort of just could feel they were in good hands because it was so thorough. You know, I mean, I feel like yeah. that's a that's a big insight to just. I mean, you have to go above and beyond what's on what's going to be on the screen to create a compelling and believable world. And it sounds like that's what you did. And it's kind of like a two hander in the sense that 
for example, we didn't build a set for the house. It's a real house. It's mm-hmm. a house that uh, one of the executive producers owned and he was going to gut and remodel. And we moved in a few months after the elderly woman who lived in that house died there. And the the wall, the dressing, the drapery, it's all hers. The f- carpet is hers. Oh, wow. And there's, there's like a, uh, I don't necessarily believe in kind of the, you know, essence of somebody baked into the walls of a house, but it is. There's yeah. a certain feeling you get. And so this was a house that an elderly woman lived in. Uh, in my story, there's an elderly woman in this house. Like that made perfect sense. Let's yeah. keep what's here. Let's use it. Um, the other side of that, uh, outside the atmosphere and the kind of the feel that you get from a real place was for my, my actors and the performers, for them to uh, feel as surrounded by authenticity as possible. Mm-hmm. So that when Dave is in that chair and he's looking over the wall, well, there's stuff you don't see in the film, but it's, I didn't want him to look over there and see a, bl- a blank wall right. where there's a curtain, you know, that immediately for him is like, you know, he's an amazing actor. He, he wouldn't have taken him out of character, but it was important that we had all that there. And the same goes for, you know, for him, you know, he, we, and I, he and I had a lot of conversations early on in terms of what's in his pockets. Hmm. We're not going to see it again, but like, what does this character carry with him into this situation? Right. A penny, is there like, is there a key to his apartment? Does he have a pen? Cause you always need a pen. Like what's in his pockets. Is there a receipt? Where's that receipt from? Where did he stop on the way here? Did, what was he getting at the grocery store? Was he getting a Twinkie? Which of course, <laughs> you know, like what is all that stuff? And so once we figured that out, I don't know, it just adds a certain level of richness. You also, if you do that work up front, you don't get into these situations where, there's some sort of change and you need to see something and no one knows what's there, mm. you know, where they, they haven't figured it out. And then you're behind the eight ball and everyone's kind of confused. And yeah, you know, so, you know, it, the more you can flesh that out, the better. Yeah. That makes a ton of sense. So last few questions here. I mean, this, this being your feature debut, were there any big lessons that you learned from this experience that you'll carry on with you in the, on your next project? Yeah, I think for me, you know, on the short film that I made, uh, I was as hands-on as possible. It was kind of like my film school, like my boot camp. And everything that went, that could go wrong did in a two-day shoot in terms of uh, I lost my my first DP the first night because his wife went into labor early. Oh, wow. Um, So I had to scramble and find a new DP in three hours. It was was insane, especially here in Denver. Um, So... And then, you know, then my the key grip got kidney stones, had to go to the ER. Oh, hell. Um, it's just, you know, that sort of stuff. That prepared me for the vigil in terms of just production and independent film. You know, mm-hmm. you're shooting all nights, uh, you know, one month shoot. And you it, it learned, it, it kind of helped me re-center in terms of like, what's important here? And I, it feels like directors who kind of blow their tops and they're kind of like yelling at the, you know, this isn't right. And they're yelling at people and they're kind of, that's their own failure. That's them failing to maintain the vision that they have, right. or maybe they don't, maybe they've lost it and they've kind of like, they're, they're scrambling to find it. So for me, it was kind of every day before the shoot was kind of getting into the sort of Zen place as I could in terms of recentering that vision. Okay. Okay. Here's the film. Um, and here's how I want to approach it. Here's how I'm going to talk mm. to people. Here's how we're going to collaborate. I want this to be a very open, very safe, very friendly set that people are happy to come back here. No yeah. one's dreading coming back the next day, even though they're exhausted. 
um, that they're all working towards the same goal, that I'm clearly sharing the vision of what this is for them so that they're invested. Um, that was something that I, you know, that really worked. And I, I, I felt, you know, really strongly about kind of coming off the film and something that I feel is going to be very important kind of moving forward. Um, yeah. Whatever predict, as long as everyone around you not only gets what we're going for and feels it's important. Cause if someone's like, Oh, this guy doesn't give a shit about what this is. Why should we, mm-hmm. you know, then you'll start seeing the quality go down. But if everyone's kind of invested and believes that, you know what you're talking about and you've seen clearly what this is going to be, then they're going to kind of, you know, as long as they believe it, they're going to follow along. And that's how you get movies made. And I think it's fascinating that you have sort of a, almost a meditation type practice where you recenter Mm. your vision (laughs) of the film every day on set before people Mm -hmm. arrive. Because I think that obviously that when you're in the throes of production and things do start going wrong, it's so easy to just say, ah, forget it, or we'll fix it in post. And sometimes you don't, but it's so easy for those details that were in your head in the very beginning to drift away. But to, to maintain that, I think is critical both for yourself and and to communicate. that phrase will fix it in post is like my worst nightmare. That is like, <laughs> that means I completely fucked up and something went wrong. And for me, you know, for example, with the vigil, there are no, there are no missing scenes. Everything we shot is in, is in the film. There's oh, wow. no, nothing else. There are obviously other takes, but there's right. no nothing. It's all there. And that was just a lot of pre-planning and figuring stuff out. Um, but yeah, this sort of centering idea, you know, it just, especially when you're not, I mean, you don't have the luxury or the budget to shoot chronologically, you know, when you're shooting scenes and out of order completely, it's, it's also about maintaining the, the, the feel of the film and the kind of where you're at from one scene to the next. Cause you're thinking of the edit mm-hmm. you're like, well, we were just here. How did we leave that? How did that go? Yeah. And so, right. I mean, I suppose it was lucky we we're in New York and I take a subway to, to the set every day. And it's like a, you know, I had a 30 minute walk and then a 20 minute subway ride. So I had a lot of time to just kind of be in myself and I would kind of go through the shots that day and I'd sketch out kind of you know, what I wanted to do. And it's just right. This recentering was really important. Um, you know, in my, in my DP, Zach Cooperstein kind of did the same thing. He actually had like a little meditation session with his entire camera crew. They'd go outside <laughs> onto the street and kind of sit around in a circle and just kind of close their eyes and just get and get there because, you know, st- sets can be incredibly stressful Yeah, as much as you plan for something. Obviously things go wrong, especially when you're doing practical effects, like we were doing, you know, there's always a chance that it does not going to work the way you wanted it to or something. So it's maintaining that cool at the same time, you know, knowing, just knowing intimately what that vision is and how you're going to stick to it. Yeah. So I know we're wrapping up, but you, you touched on something that I think is very important. I've talked to other directors about this, but I, I think it's important. As you'd mentioned, when you're doing independent filmmaking, you're not always getting a lot of sleep. It's stressful. It's hectic. But having a safe space for your cast and crew that they enjoy coming to is critical for getting people through these these really difficult time periods. So what were some of your keys for doing that? I mean, how did you create that kind of community on set where people were willing to work and completely bust their asses for you, underslept? Mm. Obviously, you're not exploiting them, but, you know, they're these are circumstances that are difficult and it's what filmmaking is all about, but you do have to make it worthwhile and they do need to feel like they're, <laughs> they're building something, you know, I mean, how, right. how do you create that sense of community on set? 
I think in the initial stages, it's just really showing them your passion for this thing, how this, what this means to you. And that if we can achieve it, it's going to be something special. So they feel like they're working for something special, not just a cash grab or just yeah. working on something that's like, Oh yeah, I have to do this. Cause whatever my other thing fell through um, that it, it truly means something to you that you, this is something you're obsessed with that you have to see made in the world and you can't do it alone, that you rely upon them to help you do it. The other thing is, knowing everybody who's there it's kind of crazy to me that you know some directors don't even bother with knowing who the grips are or wow. knowing you know second ac mm-hmm. and it's you know there's a holier than thou kind of thing that i think happens with oh, a lot yeah. of filmmakers which i guess I, I also think comes from a place of insecurity totally in terms of being like you know but i you know when you're on set every single person that you're all just different cogs in the same machine. Oh, yeah. And if one of you isn't functioning right, then the others aren't going to. So, you know, there's no one more important. Sure, when it comes time to yell action and where things going, you know, it falls on the director to make sure that this that they're running the way things are going, the way you need it, and you're getting the vision you want. If you have to do another take, you have to do another take. And if you have to do 10 other takes, you do 10 other takes. But if people have bought into the vision, they feel respected. Mm-hmm. They're not like, you know, I, I'm not like looking off camera and being like, Hey, you <laughs> to, to a grip <laughs> or something or a PA, you know? And, and the other thing is, you know, I wanted to make it very open and clear that anyone could ask me anything. Mm-hmm. I'm the keeper of the vision on the movie. Right. If someone wanted to know why we're doing something, why are we setting up this way? Why are we lighting it that way? Come to me and just ask me, you know, mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm, I'm right. This is what I'm here for. This is what I'm being paid to do. So it's not so much that I'm in some sort of bubble where no one can approach me. Oh, Keith has to do his thinking. He's out in his tent where he's got his hookah and he's going to do his thing. Don't bug him. No, come and bug me because I need everybody on set. Everybody, no matter what they're doing, if it's, you know, the PA to the grip to the, you know, AC to, you know, whatever, they all understand what we're making and why we're making it. And so if I have to kind of reinforce that or, kind of help them with it, you know, they should feel free to talk to me directly. Um, and I think that really helped. It, yeah. made, it made it much more like a family. We're all in this together, especially in a small house like that, where you're all literally on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, that helps. Yeah. That makes all the sense in the world. Well, Keith, this was a whole lot of fun. Thank you. Any uh, parting advice for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Yeah, look, this was, this is wonderful. It was great talking to you. I think, you know, for me, um, I wouldn't take my journey into filmmaking as a, as a path to follow. I spent a lot of time in lots of different careers uh, and only kind of coming here through all sorts of random uh, instances and bits of fate. But um, the one thing that I learned myself having written screenplays for a long time and wanting to be a filmmaker was that you kind of just have to do it. For me, it was making that short film. It was kind of, if you have some money lying around, it doesn't take much, honestly, with the technology that exists today. Yeah. Just make it. The other thing I would add to that is do not make your first draft. Do not sit down, write a first draft and think, I got this thing. I can do it. Because I guarantee you do not. (laughs) You have, when you're making your first film, you have all the time in the world to perfect it, to get that script right. No one's asking for it. No Mm -hmm. one's waiting for it. Once you do make something, then they will be waiting for it. Then they will be asking. Then you only have six weeks to turn around a draft. But before then, you have all the time in the world. 
make it count. You really, I'm not going to start quoting Eminem, but you really only have one shot. You really do. And if you go out on the wrong foot, um, that's going to hurt you in the long run. So take your time, figure it out, and then don't show it to everybody. Go and make something, even if it's two minutes long. Um, the last thing I'd say about it is whatever that thing is, it's got to be very personal. It's got, mm-hmm. You have to be super passionate about it. It can't be something that you're just a fan of. If you're like, hey, I got a great idea to kind of use something like this shot and this shot in this movie and kind of call it. It wouldn't be cool if we did this sort of thing like they did. That, that probably won't work. It has to come from you. It has to be organic and innate. And if it is, people will notice. People will see it. And then that's how you get your foot in the door. Okay, great. Perfect place to end. Keith, thank you so much. Awesome. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. It was a lot of fun. All right. Here, as always, are some key takeaways from this conversation with Keith. Number one. Film in authentic sets. When location scouting for the vigil, Keith and his team came across an apartment that was formerly occupied by an older woman who had recently passed away, whereby all of her possessions were left exactly as she had left them. When filming, Keith barely touched the apartment, leaving everything exactly where it was to create an atmosphere in an authentically detailed set that you could just feel. This is an interesting idea, and you definitely don't need to rent the homes of people who recently died, but do consider shooting in people's untouched living environments, especially if they match the identities of your characters. This can inexpensively create a level of realism that you can't orchestrate otherwise. Number two, outline. As a writer, Keith outlines before he writes. There are multiple types of writers, and two common archetypes are the planner and the pantser. The planner outlines everything from plot to story, character arcs, details, and dialogue, whereby the pantser takes a basic idea and begins writing immediately, allowing the story to unfold on its own. The term pantser comes from writing by the seam of your pants. Clive Barker is a planner and goes to great lengths to outline all of his work prior to putting pen to paper, whereas both Quentin Tarantino and Stephen King are both pantsers who begin writing with a basic idea and then allow their characters to dictate how the story unfolds. Keith is a planner and highly recommends outlining because it allows you to take an inventory of all of your ideas ahead of time and organize them in a way that enables you to observe what works and what doesn't work before you start writing. In this way, the writer can not only kill their darlings in the Hemingway sense, but kill them before they even hatch. Whether you're a pantser or a planner, Outlining has the power to save you a lot of time and heartache during the writing process by presenting you with a 30,000-foot view of your story in a way where you can understand what works and what doesn't work ahead of time. Number three, recenter every day on set. A lot of directors have talked about their own versions of meditation while they're in production. Keith's is very simple, but powerful. Every day before everyone arrives, he reminds himself of his vision of the movie, often visualizing it in his mind. He meditates on the plot, the characters, the tone, and the story, and he does this every day when he's filming. This enables him to remain constantly in touch with the details of his vision for the movie, which is always at risk of being compromised due to the many distractions that can occur on set. It's important to have a rudder as a director in order to protect you from strain from your vision. A meditation practice is a great way to accomplish this. 
Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor and uh, say hello while you're there. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Thank you.